Uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for putting it in the hearts of your people to give and to give abundantly and generos- generously. And Lord, I can testify to the generosity of these saints here this morning. Uh, and I just pray that you uh, bless them abundantly for their generosity. And we thank you for your kindness to us as your church. We pray we would steward, steward these, these means faithfully to your glory and, and to, the, to the advancement of the kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we'll turn now to Acts in chapter 10. Continue in our series in Acts and we get into the wonderful chapter, chapter 10. uh, The gospel beginning to go to the ends of the earth. Acts 10, 1 through 8 this morning. Let's pray. Father, will your mercy be shown today in the revelation of yourself to us? Yet again, from your word, Uh, may we see yet just a little bit more of Christ today that we may be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith Uh, on his merits. We ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 10, 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel from God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Amen. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Significant revelations like this one mark major occasions, momentous occasions in the history of redemption. And this chapter has been called by some uh, the most important in Acts or one of the most important in Acts. Chapter 10. In this chapter really in a, in a manifest way, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile crumbles in chapter 10. All of it is intended by God, initiated by God um, in this chapter by revelation from him and specifically two revelation, twin revelations, one given here to Cornelius and another one to Peter, both about each other. Uh, and we'll look at the first one this week and the second next week. And this is really part one of several parts of looking at chapter 10 as we go through. Um, so we contrast these events. I want to contrast these events with Cornelius to a story that like we could pick any one, but say Joseph Smith and the Mormon religion. Now Cornelius's vision is, is a revelation that leads him to seek the plain preaching of the gospel. And, and to seek verification from Christ's apostles. 
And this story of his vision is surrounded by historical details and precise verification. His vision is ultimately, it leads to the glory of God and is no way in self-serving. Joseph Smith is said to have received many uh, private revelations from God. He was told, supposedly, by the angel Moroni where to find the golden tablets which contained the Book of Mormon, uh, written on re- in uh, Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs, he called it, which no archaeologist can verify that that's a, a thing. But he, he found these plates, and upon recovering the plates, he stored them in a box, and he would let people lift the box, but not to look at the plates. After translation, then apparently he returned the plates conveniently to the angel Moroni. The the result of these private revelations and historical sort of vagaries was a religion dependent upon this one man and ultimately is a man-centered religion. You see the contrast between the public nature of Cornelius' event and the sort of private, odd uh, events of Joseph Smith. So amid all the truth claims that we encounter in the world and all the non-truth claims, uh, we must cling to this one simple statement that the scriptures are true. But the seminary I went to, the Dwight Zeller who started it, he's in his 90s, he's still going at it and he, he preaches that so well. It's part of the statement of the seminary. He always says, the scriptures are true. He has this growly voice. <laughs> it's just great. But that's something we need to cling to, is that the scriptures, God's revelation is true and verifiable. Uh, Luke's account here is grounded in plain, concrete, reasonable, real-life historical details. So that's where I want to begin is just some of the historical details. Uh, we're told about the geography uh, we're told that this all happened in Caesarea, and if you remember last time, Peter had gone to Lydda and then to Joppa, and now Caesarea. Caesarea is about 31 miles north from Joppa on the coast. Um, it was previously called, the city was called um, Strato's Tower, is what it was called, and Herod renamed it for the Caesar. That's why it's called Caesarea, Caesarea. And I, apparently it had a, a, a theater seating more than 4,000 people, an amphitheater, uh, temples, a massive harbor complex. And uh, this town, Caesarea, was the residence of the Roman governor of Judea. So this is a significant city. Uh, we're told that Caesarea held a regular Roman garrison and a cavalry unit and five infantry cohorts, which is what this man Cornelius was a part of was a cohort cohort was about 600 men Um, Cornelius was a centurion so he century you can he oversaw 100 men I saw between 80 and 100 and uh, a centurion's pay was 15 times that of a normal soldier this is an important individual in the Roman uh, army he was a part of the Italian cohort. So notice the difference between, say, Joseph Smith's vagaries and the specificity of Luke here. This is a specific person, Cornelius, of the Italian cohort in Caesarea. Uh, the Italian cohort, just to 
it speaks to its origin that it originated in Italy and likely now it was made up of auxiliary soldiers so perhaps Syrians and auxiliary soldiers could were, were people of other nations non-citizens who could enlist and then upon retirement they could receive Roman citizenship so it's possible that's what uh, Cornelius was there's an interesting detail Cornelius is a popular name and Daryl Bach says that uh, Cornelius more than 10,000 slaves were, were freed when Cornelius Sulla freed them in 82 BC, so about a hundred years prior. And 10,000 of these men took the name Cornelius in honor of him. So it was a common name, Cornelius. Now it says that his household, in verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. Um, and it's an odd thing, and a point of interest, because these soldiers were not technically allowed to marry. So some of them would hold unofficial wives. Um, so that's possible that that is the case, that he had an unofficial wife and some children. It's also possible that he was retired, married, and had children. Or it's possible that this word household here just simply means himself and his servants and those who lived in his household. Likely he would have had servants because he was very wealthy. Uh, we're also told that he was a devout man, and we're given three details to corroborate that. Uh, first is that he feared God. Second, he gave alms generously. And third, he prayed continually to God. Um, so this fact that he feared God is actually a technical term. He was a God-fearer, and God-fearers were, you're probably familiar with the idea of proselytes. Gentiles could become Jews essentially by taking on the, the rites of Judaism, circumcision, and the dietary laws. Uh, God-fearers were Gentiles who, who believed in the one true God, Yahweh, but did not take those rights. They did not partake of circumcision. They were not full converts to Judaism. So that's probably what Cornelius was. Um, <clears throat> almsgiving also here is a specific thing. It's not just like generosity and tithes, but it's actually giving money to the needy. So we see a bit of a parallel here between uh, Tabitha from the priest, or Dorcas, if you prefer, uh, <laughs> between this woman and and Cornelius that they were both very generous they took care of the needs of the poor and also much like Tabitha Cornelius was beloved in verse 22 of chapter 10 it says that he was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation so people appreciated Cornelius and his generosity and third he prayed continually to God so again this could be uh, just persistent attitude in prayer but it's more likely that he was faithful to keep the routine of the Jews, that they had regular times of prayer each day in the temple. And that's corroborated by he was probably praying when it says that the angel appeared to him in the ninth hour, which is uh, 3 p.m. And that was one such prayer time. So likely he was praying at that time. Also, uh, incense would have been burned in the temple so at that time, which will become a little bit more significant later. Um, one final detail here that just as far as historical uh, reliability goes is that Luke goes so far as to clarify where Peter was staying. That is, in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. Uh, and chapter 9 actually closed with, with the saying, Peter stayed for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And 
This may seem insignificant, but it sets apart the purpose of this story um, in that tanning hides is not the most ceremonially clean profession you can choose. And here's Peter, very Jewish, staying in a tanner's home. Um, it was apparently just despised trade, and, and uh, Keener says, this is funny, that the second century rabbis insisted that a tanner must allow his wife a divorce if she could not endure the smell. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe Peter got COVID, or maybe as a fisherman he was fine with the smell, but he, he spent time with this man who had this ceremonially unclean trade. So you can see as we're moving away from the, the old covenant into the new, into the tearing down of the dividing wall, uh, that this detail has significance. Uh, so my point here, really, is that there's so much rich historical detail, and I gave you some of it, but much of it would have been apparent to the modern-day reader. They would have known all that stuff. And it lends credibility to the message as a whole. Um, so this is not some myth that we're dealing with here, which seems obvious to us because most of us grew up in a Christian home, right? Where we were taught from a very early age and it was in fact assumed that the Bible was not myth, that it was historically reliable. (laughs) But we just need to imagine, I think, a few circumstances outside of our own experience which maybe will help us understand the viewpoints of others who didn't grow up with that benefit of of seeing the historicity of the Bible. Just a few examples. Think of a first century Jew who would have believed in the Old Testament, but they're looking at these events in real time. They're they're coming to this why in the road and they're having to decide, do I follow Jesus? Is this the right, is this the Messiah that was prophesied or, or not? Do I need, which way do I need to go? And so Luke, as he's presenting this material, is really presenting an argument that Jesus is reliable, that his apostles are reliable. The same is true for modern-day Jews. Um, the, the writers of the New Testament took pains to show Jesus is the promised Messiah. The apostles are his commissioned servants. This is true. He is your Messiah. Um, and Calvin had a quote that I, I printed out and I keep above my desk. And it's just helpful as a, as a pastor and a teacher to, to think this way, but I think it applies here too, is that he said, this order ought to be observed, carefully observed, for we ought not to begin with severe reproof, but with doctrine, that men may be gently drawn by it. When plain and simple doctrine is not sufficient, proofs must be added. But even this, if this method produce no good effect, then it becomes necessary to employ greater vehemence. So he's saying, start with plain doctrine, plain explanation. If that doesn't work, add proof. If that doesn't work, then begin begin to correct, to add reproof. So God here in the scripture, he doesn't just make assertions about Jesus. He also takes care to add proof for the sake of the Jews who'd be reading this for us as well. There are proofs here. Uh, it's very much like Apollos in Achaia in Acts 18.28 when he said, uh, when, when Luke recorded, he said of Apollos, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing or proving by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. 
So these are these are arguments. It's not just plain history or, or myth. These are arguments for the reliability of the gospel. Another example, I think of a person who grew up in a theologically liberal home. They're not going to assume the historicity of the Bible. Uh, Machen said, and if you haven't read Christianity and Liberalism, I think it should be required reading for, for Christians. He wrote in the 20s, and how much more applicable now uh, for liberalism. But he said, it is no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity. For the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. So you can imagine a person who grew up in that context without an assumption that the Bible is true, that it is historically reliable. We need to remember that. We may not be able to convince our friends and our family of the historicity of the biblical account, but we we can know for certain that we stand on solid ground when we look at these reliable stories. One final comment along these lines. um, I realize this is a bit of a tangent, but this is important, so try to bear with me here. Uh, It's similar to, to liberalism, but... I mentioned it this morning as well. Peter Jones has a series for teach, uh, uh, Ligonier. And he, sa- he said in that series uh, something along the lines of, as one who significantly undermined Orthodox Christianity and restored the polytheism of the Hellenistic world in Western civilizations. And he was talking about Carl Jung. You're familiar with this man, Carl Jung. Um, Jung was a Swiss psychologist in the first half of the 21st century, and Jung posited that the ancient myths of the world express core ideas that are part of the human species as a whole. In other words, myths express wisdom that has been encoded in all humans, perhaps by means of evolution or through some spiritual process. So Jung believed that the Bible was one of these these myths. Um, and the reason this is important today, and it is important, and is because if you grab any person my age on the street, 20 or 30 years old, a male, particularly ones that lean conservative or in the middle, and ask them about their major influences near the top of their list, will be Jordan Peterson. Are you familiar with Peterson? Uh, Peterson is so compelling, and he's great because he just shows that the emperor has no clothes, especially with things like liberal ideals like uh, transgenderism. It's just, he wrecks them. It's delightful. But uh, Peterson is essentially, in many ways, rehashing the psychological, mythological uh archetypes of Carl Jung. He has a whole series through Genesis, and I've listened to a lot of them, and and that's what he's doing is rehashing Jung. He's not a Christian. Um, I think the Lord may be compelling him that way, it seems like. I hope so. If you're not following that, that's okay. I just say all of that to say that we have a historical book We have historical faith in Christianity, and that's so important. It's not a mere myth. It's not mere psychological archetypes that explain human experience, but real, genuine history, history that has implications for the present.
Uh, Machen, once again, he says, liberal, theological liberals object, must we depend on what happened so long ago? Does salvation wait upon the examination of musty records? Is the trained student of Palestinian history the most the, the modern priest without whose gracious intervention no one can see God? We cannot find instead a salvation that is independent of history. Machen answers, he says, salvation that does depend upon what happened long ago. But the event of long ago has effects that continue until today. We are told in the New Testament that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of those who should believe on him. And that is a record of a past event. So I'm trying to impress upon you this point that we have a historical faith, a real historical faith. And Luke here takes great pains to present the history as historical fact. And the application here then is that these historical events, uh, just like the cross of Christ, have major implications for the present. Uh, for example, look around the room. Is anyone here of Jewish ethnic descent? You see the connection between Cornelius and us 2,000 years later. Here stands one American Dutchman preaching the very same once-delivered gospel as the apostles. Lord willing, my conscience is clear on that. These events have significant impact on us today. Now, once again, we're so familiar with the stories, but we should not let familiarity cloud our clarity. To us, it may feel like a side note. The gospel is going to the nations. Well, of course it is. That's what it's been doing for 2,000 years. But at the time, this is a radical idea, especially to Jews. It's, it's really, this is one of the major emphases in the New Testament, that the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. And we should be immensely grateful as Gentiles that that is the case. We should not just take it for granted. So as, as this is such an apparent radical shift in the, in the paradigm for people, Luke is taking great pains to plainly affirm God's hand in the whole thing. So I want to look at a few now points of kind of divine ap, uh, affirmation that we see in this text as well. I, I like the way that Daryl Bach put it. He said, really speaking about chapter 10 as a whole, he said, everything was coordinated by God. These are not mere events of man. Everything was coordinated by God, really choreographed. I mean, think about this too, that it's not just that he choreographed the bringing of the gospel to, the, to, to Cornelius, but he did it in such a way that it was public and recorded an important shift in redemptive history because anybody could have brought the gospel to Cornelius. Many Gentiles received the gospel without record of it. So this is marking an important shift in time in the book of Acts. We have to keep that in mind. So let's begin with uh, Cornelius's vision. The Bible here, really the Bible is a very Jewish book, and it's not very often that a um, Gentile receives a vision from God. And yet here he receives this visitation from an angel. And its significance is, of course, that he as a Gentile is told to fetch Peter, who is the leader of the Christian movement and a Jew, and, and bring him 
to his home, which he would have known as a God-fearer would be uh, really to defile Peter. So this is a significant event. Um, and then, as I noted before, this is not a single vision. This is a twin vision, just as um, Saul and Ananias. You remember that story from a few chapters back. Again, this is the confirmation of the Lord. They're both receiving visions about one another. Uh, we also have apostolic affirmation here, which is the a theme throughout the book of Acts. Remember, Acts is from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we've been going through these phases. And at each point, the apostles recognize God's hand in it. And this is really significant in terms of uh, affirming the gospel going to the Gentiles, that Peter is so involved And finally here we have, which I think this is perhaps the most significant thing in this passage, is that God is hearing the faith of a man and changing his paradigm. And I'll explain what I mean by that. That He, he says, the, the angel says to Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So we, here we have this picture of, of in the temple at the ninth hour, praise being raised to God at three o'clock in the afternoon, the burning of incense, it's being raised up to the nostrils of God. And, and the angel saying, God has recognized that. Now go fetch Peter. Now what, what do we make of that? I mean, has this man, was he the first sort of, um, did he earn his election? <laughs> Did he earn this salvation? Your, your prayers and your alms have raised to the Lord. Has this unrighteous man earned the favor of God? Uh, Daryl Bach commenting on the word memorial, he says, this is the only occurrence of the term in the New Testament. Its roots go back to the language in the Old Testament and Judaism. It is an offering made in commemoration to God that God accepts as pleasing. Cornelius' prayer is described like a sacrifice. The picture is of God responding to Cornelius' effort to know him and granting him more light. So here's what I think is going on here, and I think this is significant, is Cornelius was already a man of faith. His devoutness, his almsgiving, his constancy in prayer, they were all genuine expressions of faith toward the God of the Bible, toward Yahweh. To belief in, in God's promises. But he had not plainly heard the gospel of Christ. And as a believer, specifically living in this transitional period between Old and New Covenant, he was essentially at this point living out the Old Covenant faith in the New Covenant time period. So what we have here is not an example of conditional election. Rather, we have God's mighty hand directing a man of faith to what is the true object of his faith. It's a shift from shadow to substance. And this is momentous for two reasons. First, it is the shift that's taking place across Judea and the whole region and soon across the whole Mediterranean basin. As the writer to the Hebrews says in 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The second reason it's momentous, and we'll see this more in the coming weeks, is that the Gentiles receive full covenant, covenant membership in these events. 
full covenant membership. Gentiles in this chapter will receive their own uh, Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit. Just like the Jews did. Gentiles will become heirs of the promises of God. And that's kind of where I want to leave off this week. I would like to leave off rejoicing and thanking God for this momentous historical occasion. Without it, where would we be? We, we who are Gentiles, the nations, the, the goim, the filthy, sinful, outsiders to the covenant, if not for Christ's kind and gracious ingrafting of us into the living vine. So I, I like a good mystery story. I'm sure you all do too. Um, there's two really key elements to a great mystery. First, there has to be anticipation. The author has to build anticipation. I have to know what's going to happen. I want to know what's going on. And the second is the revelation of, of the mystery has to pay off. It has to be a good one. I want to be wowed. I, want to, I wasn't expecting that. That's amazing. It all makes sense. And Paul often speaks of the gospel as a mystery, um, by which he means something that was hidden but now is revealed. This great mystery is this historical mystery. It's not a novel. It's not a real. It's a real life drama written by the divine playwright, and it has all those hallmarks of a great mystery. First, anticipation. Peter says in First Peter chapter one, the anticipation was so great that the prophets, inspired by the Spirit, writing the scriptures, searched and inquired carefully to know about our salvation. They didn't quite understand, but they wanted to know. They searched and inquired carefully. See that anticipation. And in fact, he goes on to say that even the angels long to look into what we have. That's anticipation. And the payoff is amazing in terms of the revelation of the mystery. Um, it's beyond what anyone could have imagined. That God would take on human flesh, vanquish sin and death forever, and engraft men and women from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, adopting us. If you want to turn to Ephesians 3, and we'll look at this passage briefly together. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 6, Paul defines what the mystery is, the mystery of the gospel. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery that was hidden for long ages and is now revealed that we Gentiles in Christ, in the gospel. And he continues, he says, uh, he says, of this gospel, a little bit farther down, verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plain mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And this is why, this is the amazing purpose behind it all. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
But I'm not sure my mind can wrap around what he just said there. But what he's saying is God saved you and God saved me through the gospel of Jesus Christ as Gentiles. So the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, like the elders before the throne and the creatures and, and the angels and the heavenly hosts would see God's wisdom. They would say, wow, look at what he did. Look at the mystery revealed. I wasn't expecting that. Now it all makes sense. Look how he brought in the wretched refuse from far and wide and sat them down in, the, in honor at the banquet table. Look, even Cornelius, the Roman centurion, was brought in. Even Zach Cruz, even Paige Meredith. They're all seated among the family of God. That, that's astounding. He said he did it to the praise of his wisdom, of his manifold wisdom. Behold the manifold wisdom of God. And this must be why Paul can't help himself in Romans chapter 11. After an extended explanation of the same mystery, he burst out in doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.